I'm Cahill Summers. And I'm Georgia Glenn. You're Chagas Sustainability Advisors, and you're welcome to the Chagas Environment Edge podcast, bringing you the latest information, science, and opinion to improve farm sustainability. On this episode, Chagas Dairy Advisor in Kilkenny, Pat Moylan, chats to us about the importance of being ready for the silage season and the value of slurry in reducing chemical fertilizer use. Silage effluent is a highly polluting liquid and can cause fish kills in rivers and contaminate wells if not collected, stored and land spread correctly. With up to 30 litres of effluent lost per day from a tonne of fresh cut grass, what can we do to avoid losses? With a cold, dry start of the year, a lot of grass is waiting to be cut for silage. Why is it so important to test the grass for nitrates and sugars before mowing? Is slurry really just a waste product or something much more? Pat tells us how Chagas Waterford Kilkenny Advisory Region are working with farmers on a project to improve slurry use efficiency and reduce the use of chemical nitrogen on the farm. With silage season beginning, I asked Pat, what should farmers be doing now to get their silage pits ready for harvest? Look at this stage with the silage season imminent, it's time to look at the silage pit itself, uh, to examine the silage pit, look at what silage has been left over. Is there any waste or rotting uh, silage around the edges that need to be tidied up? And maybe with a shear grab to get a kind of cloth shave or a tight uh, finish to the front of the pit. After that, it's time to examine the, I suppose, the structure of the walls and floors, looking for cracks, hairline cracks, etc. And if uh, some repairs need to be done with hot bitumen or asphalt, or maybe a three to one sand cement mix, now it's time to get them ready. And, and after that, I suppose, it's really to be organising the tyres and the potential of what you're going to use for recovering. So now is the time because once the silage season starts with contractors, it can start very rapidly. And next thing it's all a rush job and farmers are just under, put themselves under a lot of pressure. So it's a bit of time now, the weather has improved. Hopefully a bit of growth is coming and silage season is approaching. So look at the pit and get it ready. Yeah, look, and from the water quality side of the house, I suppose, we'd be worried about effluent getting into the rivers. And look, generally farms will have a drain or some connection to a river. So it's vitally important we keep that effluent away and Pat, where, where would we normally challenge the effluent, I suppose, into slurry tanks? Yes, in the majority of cases, I suppose, uh, silage effluent is being channeled into slurry effluent tanks. Um, so I suppose it's about time that people will check the channels, that they're going the right directions, that the diversion traps are working correctly. And, you know, it's not very good practice generally to spread raw silage effluent onto the land, as you know, because it can burn the grassland. So it's preferred that it is stored in an adjoining slatter tank. But again, you need to check that all that plumbing, if you like, is effective and that the diversion traps are working to make sure the effluent goes where it should go. Yeah, and I've seen that actually on a few farms on where effluent is so potent, put on land, it's like you spray it with Roundup, it just completely burns it. So it's even just to give you an idea, we're talking, I think, per ton of grass, you're talking up to 30 litres um, of effluent can come off it when you're in silent first. So just to consider that. Um, just another thing there, Pat, I suppose we're, we're talking about cracks or bitumen, you're talking about sealing. Often you'd see these little cracks and I, I've come across it a few times where the crack comes down the pit, uh, goes into the ground somewhere and comes up somewhere else on the farm. They're, they're fairly hard to trace. So even those little hairline cracks are important to cover, aren't they? No, absolutely. Look, it was a question that the size is definitely going down somewhere on, on the pit floor and coming up somewhere else around the farmyard. Well, that's a major job, which at this stage is, you know, people have to put some temporary measures maybe by putting double row of plastic or a sheet of a thousand gauge plastic underneath the silage for this silage season. Uh, but really, that really lends itself to a whole 
you know, digging up and uh, re, re, putting in a new whole silage base there. And as you know, you need at least 28 to 30 days of drying time uh, with modern concrete to ensure that it's good enough come harvest time. So that's a job that at this stage is probably too late, but obviously it's something that is of urgent importance. So I suppose our, my recommendation would be to put it maybe one, if not two sheets of a thousand gauge plastic, for example, on top of the existing slab and bring it up along the sidewalls for now, if you think that is the case. And obviously then you're going to be looking at next February or March when the pitch is empty to do a proper job. Uh, maybe it might lend itself to applying to TAMS. Uh, TAMS does cover the resurfacing of existing silage pits. And at this stage, all concrete works is done with 45 Newton 20 concrete, but timing is of the essence. Yeah, and um, I just we're going, but we'll go back a little bit now, I suppose, thinking of when we close off the silage paddocks. This is an unusual year, and we were chatting about before I came on there, but it's been a cold year. It's uh, it's been dry enough as well, so growth is back a good bit. It's it's, it's actually unusually for this time of year. The growth is, is really poor concert, compared to what it was other years. But um, thinking when we're putting on our our hundred units of, of nitrogen, maybe and our P's and K's to get ready for 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 the silage crop, maybe six weeks ago or whatever it was. Um, do you think there's a fear maybe that there could be nitrogen still around, or what 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 way what would you advise? Yeah, absolutely. Well, our recommendation for first cut silage has always been around 100 units of nitrogen per acre, including that which comes from the slurry component of things. And I suppose most farms would have put out, in my estimation, somewhere around probably 80 units of chemical nitrogen this year and the balance through slurry using the low emission slurry spreading techniques. You know, we normally talk about two units of nitrogen being used up per day, but we know that this April just gone has been the coldest and the driest April in living memory. And I would believe there's a lot of uh, background nitrogen still there. So look, we know the weather has been milder this week. We have rainfall and there's every chance that growth will take off in the coming week or two. But this year might be a good, very good year for farmers to be ultra cautious near harvest time to get the nitrates tested on the grass and the sugars to be sure because high nitrates and low sugars is a pure disaster as regards silage preservation. And I'm sure with the COVID situation across the country, all the different shock offs have a protocol or will have a protocol in place for people to leave grass samples, preferably frozen, and leave them in a box maybe outside the office clearly labelled. And then we will bring those in uh, in due course and test them for both nitrates and sugars and ring or text the farmer back and tell them what the situation is. But obviously, yes, go back to the original part of your question, Carl this year with a slow growth in April is it going to be a very high risk situation for high nitrates and silage. And we'll have to look at mitigation strategies, whether that be letting the crop grow on longer in most cases, or if we do decide to cut, we may be looking at putting in some form of, to use wilting, for example, or else use some kind of uh, preservation agent to aid the conversion of the sugars into lactic acid. Yeah, would you be advising them, Pat, that every farm really should be getting that silage tested before they cut? Well, I think, yes, uh, I suppose, you know, uh, what we would like to do in, in the office, particularly in Kilkenny Water area, is when the samples come in, we will actually try and maybe organise and text out once a week what the nitrous and sugar are like for most farmers. Um, my myself, I suppose, particularly, I always pay more attention to the sugars. You would like sugars to be at 3% and greater. But farmers themselves will have a fair idea by looking at the crop. If it's very lush, you know, low cover, bluey green colour, and maybe not so long closed, they'll have a fair idea themselves that the nitrates cannot be low enough for preservation. And obviously the weather will dictate too what will happen in the next two or three weeks. So 
look, the whole thing can change very quickly in the grassland world, as I mentioned earlier, particularly now with a bit of rain at the weekend and milder temperatures. But yes, I suppose if you took even one sample on the silage fields, it would give you a guideline of where you are at this present time even. Would you reckon, say, if you do come in with high nitrates, obviously that's a bad thing to... We probably we either overplayed nitrogen or like you said, the weather that we had this year, just the growth wasn't there to take it up. So we have excess nitrogen sitting up in the leaf and it's going to affect our ensiling. But I suppose at that stage, your advice would be if, if you do cut and it comes in as maybe high nitrous, low sugar, would you kind of cut maybe in the evening time and give it a day's wilt or something like that? Yeah, it's always best practice if you can to cut maybe the grass in the afternoon when sugar are to their highest point. And so the other thing would be important that the crop is actually cut dry because it's, it's not as easy to dry a crop if it's cut actually some way wet or cut very early in, in, you know, in the morning or late at night, which ultimately can happen, obviously. So the first step would be trying to cut it in the afternoon. And then obviously depending on the weather, you know, if you really want to get wilting on the way, to till out the grass straight away at cutting time. I kind of find some years that farmers cut the grass. It's, it's in wide swarts with modern machinery. And what they think is wilting is not actually wilting at all. And if they want to increase the speed of wilting, my advice has always been the day you cut it, you should tear it out immediately for full ground cover. Leave it a day, day and a half, having a close eye on the weather, but you will get the sugars up and the dry matter up a lot quicker if you do a full tearing out of the grass after cutting. I suppose optimum cutting time is dictated to two, I suppose, by the, um, the contractor. But I suppose the testing and the analysis that we do in the offices gives you some scope um, in the management decisions after, after the cutting as well. Um, Pat, once the pit is open in the winter, how can we stop the rainwater running into the effluent challenge and filling up our tanks? Well, I suppose the first thing is that obviously we want to keep the silage pit face fairly clean. Uh, and that's why our advice has always been for wide, not for wide silage pits, but for long and narrow silage pits particularly. And then to make sure that the challenges are, are, are working, I suppose in the modern design of silage pits now, it is strongly advised to have a double channel at the front of the silage pit, even before the pit is open, that the clean water goes actually over the plastic onto the outside channel and goes away to the clean water drain and the effluent is on the inside channel at the front. So that's a kind of, I suppose, a design factor. Uh, but I suppose other than that, then it's going to be important that if the pit face is kept clean and the base, the apron as you empty the pit. So a lot of what's coming off the silage pit is totally dictated by management. If it's kept, if it's dirty, well, then you're dealing with, with water that must be collected as if it's a slurry. But if you keep it clean, uh, that can be directed to the clean water drain out, outlet. But look, it's it's a lot of us doing with management and having the correct channels in place, making sure the channels don't get clogged during, over the winter period uh, and managing on a day-to-day -day basis, like any soil yard. But the perimeter channels, I suppose, also um, it would be very, very important to make sure that the ensile grass should never extend over the channels um, and, and, and the plastic as well over the winter period, shouldn't it? Absolutely, I suppose that, and that's <clears throat> that's why we generally talk about having a you know a silage pit apron at least six meters out from the from the first channel with another channel at the end of that to allow for that that circumstance. But the ideal world, you have the rainwater fall on on the plastic coming down and coming into the second channel at the front of the of the apron, while the effluent has been caught by the fourth channel. And that's that's what you you'd like to aim for when you're designing a silage pit, and those specifications are available on the department website there. Yeah, because it's easy to be caught out there. If if you're cutting silage here and you bring it in and you're trying to squeeze a bit too much into the one pit, 
Um, we've seen it a few times, and particularly if it's a b- bit of a bumper year for grass, where you know the, the, that that pit is going a little bit beyond the channel and just nearly leaking down the yard all winter. We have to kind of avoid that at all costs. Yes, yeah, so that's why the advice has always been when you look at the design there, specification from the department, that you do one of two things. One, you you have a second channel which is at least six meters from the first channel, or else you have a slope from the front of the apron back towards the channel where the silage is. If you don't have a second channel, that way there'll be no escape of liquids from the base of the concrete. Yeah, and if I had a magic wand, and you don't see it in too many farms, but talking about pit design there, you're talking about, we would often see or on paper, if you could do it, that if you could fill the pit from one side and empty it from the other side so that when you pull back the plastic over the winter, that that all that rainwater from the plastic is going away from the pit rather rather than into the channel. Yeah, so as you said, that's the ideal situation, but that mightn't pertain. A lot of silage pits are generally filled and empty from the from the one in, in my experience. So it comes down to the, the management and keeping the the keeping all the rotting, you know, any bits of rotten silage that are falling on the floor off the front loader, keeping that area as clean as possible, and making that yard as clean as you can. A lot of silage has been baled these days throughout the growing season. How do we ensure that we harvest good quality bales? And what's the best way, do you think, um, Pat, to store these, um, particularly with water quality in mind? Yeah, I suppose obviously in the early season bales, there haven't been too many to date, but that could all change again in the next week, 10 days. And and typically these farmers are cutting maybe covers of maybe two to two and a half thousand covers of green lush grass. So obviously cutting it, in the afternoon, obviously giving it a head and having it as dry as possible. And when those bales in particular are, are made, again, I'd say ideally, they should be stored in a separate part of the yard, maybe for now, no more than one bale high. Because like, you, like you've said there, I've seen it there where people have made bales in April and May, and next thing uh, they put one, if not two bales more on top of them very quickly. And next thing, you, you just, just, there's leaks all over the yard and the bales really flatten to pancakes. So. This particularly this time of the year, April into early May, before the fiber really comes into the grass plant, those bales should be kind of you know if they can made separately and even marked and you know kept kept for early lactation feeding next year. I know farmers some farms will go as far as either putting a different color of plastic on them at this time of the year to identify them, or else mark them fairly clearly. But they are high quality. It is high quality material in those bales, but the people have to be very careful about the way they store them and not to put more than one bale on top of them, being honest about it. Yeah, I suppose stackability is also influenced by, you know, the dry matter content. So at around 25 to 35%, you can stack it around the two high and try and go on their ends rather than on their rounds because once they're on their rounds, they tend to be pierced, especially if you put try to put two, one on top of the other, you get bursting and mole growth and that as well. So um, it's, it's important to look at the dry matter content when you're when you're when you're storing them as well. And if you do come across them, I suppose you know, oftentimes you could have fifty or hundred bales sitting in the yard and not being collected. And you don't have to collect them if they're not leaking. But if you do come across a leak, generally I don't know you had I don't know if you're coming across the same thing. I I try and get them to take out the leaky bales and stick them somewhere with a bit of a channel on the end of a silage bit or on a dung pad or somewhere they can collect. Absolutely, Carl. Yeah. Maybe a lot of cases, the, the manure pit for storing for FYM is empty now uh, and it's, the, the dung has been brought to the field field storage. So that would be an ideal place to put in those type bales or obviously the corner of the existing silage pit inside the channels, to be sure, to be sure. 
and they need to be 20 metres away from the water course if they're not, um, you know, stored in the yard with, you know, and the effluent going to a tank. So you need to keep that 20 metres. It's very important from the water bodies. Any drains or anything, yeah. Pat, uh, the Waterford, Kilkenny region, the advisory region you're working in, uh, you're doing a bit of work with farmers to improve the efficiency of slurry there over the last few months. That's it's very interesting. I know myself and Deirdre are involved in it a bit there as well. But um, can you tell me a bit about it on, on the slurry side? What you're doing with farmers there? Yeah, this spring I suppose in a bid to uh, reduce chemical nitrogen use on farms and also for farmers to apply the appropriate amount of nutrients, and particularly to the first and second cut silage. Uh, I engaged with a number of my, my discussion groups, and I know other advisors did the same. And we got them to take uh, slurry samples, which were sent away for analysis. And I suppose those analysis came back there in around the first week of April, just in time for us to make appropriate recommendations for first cut silage. So I suppose over 30 samples from three discussion groups of mine, what I suppose I found of the average dry matter was around 6.6%, with a range of maybe 2% dry matter for open tanks or indeed slurry lagoons. And up as far as in one case, I think we had 10% dry matter, which came from a, a slatted shed that was used for fattening cattle, completely covered. And from an NP and K point of view, the average analysis came back at six units of nitrogen per thousand gallons, five units of phosphorus. And what surprises is that we got 40 units of potash per thousand gallons on average, whereas heretofore our book value would have said maybe 30 units of potash. So we came back with, I suppose, the equivalent of a 6540 fertilizer, and each farmer got his own and the group results. And then, you know, they went back and made appropriate adjustments to their fertilizer program. So it's definitely well worthwhile, and it can still be done at any part of the year with, with um, agitated slurry. And it gave those farmers, I suppose, a definitive figure for their own yards, what material they're dealing with. And obviously then if that slurry was then applied with less or low emissions slurry spreading equipment, well, that six units of nitrogen might be as far as nine, maybe 10, maybe 11 units, depending on, on the time of day and the spreading technique. So look, that, that was the key message that they saw the dry matter and the dry matter has a huge effect on the NP and K, particularly the P and K. That's, um, it's, it's interesting actually, because if, if we're used to, farmers are used to doing soil testing. I think everyone, you know, is happy enough to, to put spend a few pounds on soil testing and we see the benefit in it. But it's not that common, Pat, I'd say, for people to test slurry. And it's, it's something that we would certainly be pushing because it's only 50, it's about 50 euro, I think, is it for a, a sample or something? 75 euro included, yeah. 75 yeah. euro is the agreed figure. So if you only had a couple of tanks, uh, the main thing there is to make sure it's well agitated, it's a good, good representative sample. And it, once you have that piece of information, now you know you have a whole slurry tank of compound fertilizer in my eyes. You're after saying whatever, 630, 40, or... 6540. 6, 6540, sorry, 6540. So if you went to buy that in the co-op, in a compound, you're going to be paying 400 euro or maybe 450 a ton for it. So I think it really opens our eyes up to seeing you know, that, that that slurry tank is it's worth, it's like a little bank vault there. It's definitely not a waste product and we have to mind it and utilise it. No, absolutely. And I think farmers are seeing this spring with the increase uh, cost of chemical fertiliser and also we have to be cognizant of what's happening maybe in the region, southeast region with nitrogen and phosphate levels uh, and like bit by bit, you know, and I think a lot of good work was done over the, the winter period by our derogation courses done by Chagas nationwide and think farmers are more aware of what's happening on farm and that there are places that they can cut back on, on chemical fertilizer application without affecting growth. 
the other parts of this is many projects happening across Kilkenny Waterford on those on three farms that during the months of May, June, and July, they're also spreading two rates of chemical nitrogen on the raising paddocks, one rate 20% below the other. And these guys are measuring grass on a weekly basis, so they're going to come back and report to us what they've seen. So it's a little kind of a mini program here in the Kilkenny Waterford area with the ultimate aim of reducing chemical nitrogen use, but also the first part of that for those farmers is getting their slurries analysed. So look, there'll be a lot of good messages from it, but definitely I think we're all realising, and we should, we need to realise that this, this slurry, uh, particularly now we have more cover tanks than uncover tanks, and you know, meal field levels are what they are on a beef and dairy farm. So this is a valuable nutrient on our farm, which costs money to put there. It's not a free fertiliser by any means, but we do need, and farmers need to take more, I suppose, uh, cognizance of it going forward. And ultimately, they can reduce their fertilizer bills. Yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great program down in the region because we're aware the southeast region has some issues with with nitrate, um, because we're in free drain soils and uh, kind of leading ahead, trying to, to trying to find practical measures and show farmers how how to how are supposed to reduce their nitrogen inputs, but also try and maintain the growth. So, I think definitely the farmers we visit like to be able to go onto farms and talk to other farmers and see how things are going. So I think it's the, it's the right step. And I know the three, you're calling it the, the three T's down in the region is test your soil, test your sorry, slurry and test your silage, see what the quality is like. So I think that's a, a good point to, to farmers. Yeah, I think it's an excellent management tool with environmental and financial benefits to it. Um, do you have any advice, um, Pat, on, on spreading of slurry after the silage is cut? Yeah, so for most farmers, um, there will be a reasonable quantity of slurry to be spread because of the, the delayed spring growth, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, and I suppose our normal recommendations would be obviously to, to agitate that slurry very safely, number one, because there, there is evidence to suggest that when the air temperature increases, that we can actually have increased levels of hydrogen sulfide uh, emissions. So to be very careful at agitation points and not to be in the vicinity of, of the shed and to have it well all the roads wide open and get away from there. That would be the first thing, safety message. And secondly, our normal recommendation would be in the 1,500 gallons to 2,000 gallons of agitated slurry per acre. And ideally, it will it will be applied straight onto the aftermath of the first cut silage. And then people will have a chance maybe a week later to come back into chemical nitrogen. Like our standard recommendation would be probably, you know, 80 units of, chemical, of nitrogen in total from all sources for the second cut, maybe around 12 units of phosphorus and 80 units of potash. And for most farmers, that can be by and large met by applying 1,500 to 2,000 gallons of slurry and then using something like maybe protected urea to bring up the, the nitrogen to the total of 80 units in total. So, you know, the, the slurry has a huge role to play as part of the P&K fertilizer part of the, of the second cut, but it must be handled very carefully, as I mentioned. There's one thing to think about there actually just jumped to my mind. We spoke about that. It's likely that there's nitrogen not utilised because of the weather. Like, geez, we had frost there the other, other day, even here. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's been very, very dry around the southeast as well. And um, so, obviously, that nitrogen is sitting there. And generally, after you have a dry time, once that heat comes, we'll have mineralization of nitrogen and the 100 units that probably weren't utilised from the first cut. So, just to bear that in mind when people are throwing maybe nitrogen and slurry on for the second cut, 
that there's probably excess nitrogen in the, in the soil there to be utilised. So it's definitely a good point to think about. And actually, maybe to call their scope there, maybe to cut that recommendation back by up to 20 units per acre to allow for all that, because we, we've seen it from a great situation that over Bank Holiday weekend a couple of years ago, I remember we had farmers rec- recording 130 to 140 kilos of grass dry matter per hectare per day because of a background nitrogen. So look, we have better story out there on farms with a cold spring, and the fertilizers you mentioned is put out for the first cut. So look, I, I don't think there'll be any harm in people to look at reducing that 80 units of the chemical nitrogen, maybe possibly back at, back to 60. And in the meantime, they'll they'll also be armed with the knowledge they'll have by getting their grasses tests for nitrates, see where they're actually at, where at at this time of the year. Yeah, and uh, the one other thing as was well to mention that you mentioned low emission spreading and look. It, it's a brilliant technology. It reduces our ammonia emissions, and it's something that we really have to consider. But the other thing, don't forget the, the old advice of, you know, low emission spreading can do so much for us, but we still should be spreading on those overcast, slightly misty days because it, it does reduce that ammonia emissions, and ammonia is is nitrogen. So to consider them all, the, the old good advice, I suppose. No, absolutely, that hasn't changed at all. We've just changed the type of equipment, but the basics still apply. So that's it, Pat. I think we covered a lot of stuff there. But the important thing to come out of here is uh, a lot of testing. Use the tools we have available, I think. And the other thing to remember is that, you know, look after our pits. The pits, the big message coming here from today is, you know, we don't want effluent getting in, into our into our water, into our rivers. Um, in actual fact, a farm that I worked on a good few years ago when I was doing farm management, we had, we got effluent ran into our, our well water. So we put, that was an absolute disaster trying to get it out of the well water. So... It's important to get those cracks fixed up, make our channels correct and make sure the effluent's going to the right places. So thank you very much, Pat, today. And just the last thing, Carl, as well, just to remind farmers about the buffer zones that exist for spreading slurry of five metres from water courses and also chemical fertiliser, two metres. So they shouldn't be forgotten about in the whole package as well. Thanks, Pat. Thanks for your time. That's it for this episode of the Chagask Environment Edge podcast. Thanks to Pat Moylan, Chagask Dairy Advisor in Kilkenny for joining us on the show. And if you would like any further information on nitrogen use efficiency, listen back to podcast one. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. And for more information, go to the Chagas website at chagas.ie. I'm Carl Summers. And I'm Georgia Glenn. Join us next time for the Chagas Environment Edge podcast, signpost to farm sustainability.